Welcome to Extreme Genes, brought to you by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, how is the coronavirus epidemic affecting DNA testing? Hi, it's Fisher, and I'll be talking to Dr. Blaine Bettinger about that and many other topics about where our traditional DNA tools are going, how they're changing, and what new tools may be coming along. That's this week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, brought to you by FamilySearch.org. Discover, gather, connect, a presentation of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And welcome to another spine-tingling edition of Extreme Genes, America's Family History Show and ExtremeGenes.com. It is Fisher here, your radio root sleuth, on the program where we shake your family tree and watch the nuts fall out. Well, we've got a loaded show today because we've got two lengthy segments with Dr. Blaine Bettinger talking about DNA today. What's coming down the pike? What are some of the new tools that are actually getting refined? And he's going to share some thoughts also about testing now during the COVID-19 pandemic, about whether we should send tests in or not, what the rules would be with that. So we've got a lot of ground to cover with him coming up in just a little bit. Time to go out to Boston right now and talk to my good friend David Allen Lambert, the chief genealogist of the New England Historic Genealogical Society and AmericanAncestors.org. Hello, David. How are you? Well, I'm doing good, and so is my family. I hope that you and yours, Fish, are doing well. And, of course, to all of our listeners out there during this crazy time. Yeah, um, it is wacky. It truly is. You know, I'll tell you, there's a story, and like I say, I I hate bringing the bad news in light of all of this, but the ironic death of a 108-year-old British woman who had survived the 1918 Spanish flu. Her name is Hilda Churchill, and she just died recently in England. So she survived the Spanish flu. Her sister succumbed to the Spanish flu over 100 years ago. So Hilda dies of COVID-19 in 2020, Mm -hmm. and her sister passed away in 1918. Yeah, it's sad, but I'll tell you, on the upswing, a gentleman in Italy who was 101 years old recently, Mr. P, as he is known to the press, He has survived, and here's another one who was alive during the time of the Spanish flu. Yeah, and he survived that one and survived this one. So we've got kind of bookends on this whole thing. But both of them kind of historic figures that kind of represent both pandemics in one lifetime. We talked about the Clotilda, which was the ship that brought slaves to Alabama. In fact, the last slave ship in American history. Yeah, it was in 1860. It was the final one, and it was actually a trip that took place on a bet, which was crazy. And they burnt the ship on top of it. Well, and Matilda McCreer, who died in 1940, in her early 80s, was a survivor of this event. And she was the last survivor from the Clotilda. Yep. Now, not the last enslaved individual in America, but the last one from The Last Vessel, which is an interesting article, and you can find that on ExtremeGenes.com. You know, we've all heard about Anne Frank. We've all seen her diary. But did you know that her diary was heavily edited by her father, Otto Frank? Yeah, I've heard this. It was a long time ago, and and I want to say it was edited enough. You might want to say it was even censored by her dad. Censored's a good word. Yeah, it talks about her thoughts about her friends and even the tepid relationship that her parents had. So I could see in some respects censors of the day would have wanted to make it more, I don't know, kid-friendly? Yeah. <laughs> Which obviously has been a book that's been read by countless children since it was published back in the uh, early 1950s. Well, certainly she's one of the most high-profile people who are involved in the Holocaust among the victims. I want to give a shout-out to 
a 13-year-old who's actually a listener of Extreme Genes. Fish, I talked to you last week about Elijah Starkey. This young man was listening with his mother, J.L. Starkey, and he said, this is really interesting. That's kind of cool to think that the younger generation is enjoying our banter on Extreme Genes, which made his mother, J.L. Starkey, very happy. <laughs> so I just wanted to share that, Elijah, if you're tuning in again, thanks so much and stay tuned. You know, Fish, you have any old chewing gum hanging around the house or uh, corporate lights? Or? No, no, I don't have anything like that. <laughs> why, why? What are you thinking here? Well, you know, that or illuminated manuscripts, these all have DNA. And the museums are now going and taking things out of collections, which have probably been gathering dust for years. That, of course, is human bones. There's rodent middens where rodents have squirreled away for hundreds of years and thousands of years in rocks or buildings. They can tell things about the ancient ecosystems. It's just amazing. And this is another story that's on ExtremeGenes.com. And saving baby teeth, well, you can get DNA from those too. The strangest things. <laughs> well, and, and you're right. There's an awful lot of information in this article about things they've discovered from testing this old stuff. And it kind of really ties together with what we talked about last week with keepsake DNA and what Kara Porter's putting together. So kind of gives me hope that, yeah, you know, we're only talking about stuff from the last 150 years. If they can get material from centuries ago, hopefully uh, Kara's effort is going to really help all of us when it comes to uh, DNA and gathering it maybe from our second or third great-grandparents. So this goes out to Elijah and all his friends. When you think about sticking bubblegum at the bottom of your school desk, when you're back at school, don't do it because the DNA in it, they'll be able to figure out who did it. Yeah, even when you're 80 years old. <laughs> well, I have one more story for you. If you're of Irish ancestry, this may be of interest to you. So in 2006, Bertie Curry was clearing off land from a Quakes bar on Rathlon Island out in Antrim, Ireland. And he found a large flat stone buried beneath it were skeletons. These skeletons, they would have thought, came from the ancient Celts. No, it turns out their DNA is more likely from the Middle East. They're saying that these people that were in Antrim may have arrived from Ireland from the southern Mediterranean and brought cattle, cereal, and ceramics with them. So they weren't Celts. Correct. And it doesn't mean everyone, but that does show that how many descendants from that group of people 2,000 years ago could there be? And so the original thought of all Irish being of Celtic background may not be true. Wow. All right, David, thanks so much. And we will talk to you again later in the show as we do Ask Us Anything. And it was great at Roots Tech, which was like the last event I got to attend before uh, all these things came down with the COVID-19 isolation. It was great to see my friend Blaine Bettinger there. Dr. Blaine Bettinger, of course, is the man behind the Shared Centimorgan Project. That has been updated. Of course, he's one of the leading figures in genetic genealogy in the country. And Blaine, it's great to have you back on. It's a great time to be talking about these things because we got a lot more of it, don't we? Yes, that's right. That's right. We have some time now to talk about these things. And I think we're both the kind of people that, that love DNA. We love data. We love these kinds of yes. uh, citizen science projects. So I think it's a fun thing to talk about. Well, and, and you are so good at explaining so many things to people as they get into it. And uh, this is a time where a lot of folks are going to make a lot of headway because they have the real time to devote to it. I guess we should start with the Shared Centimorgan Project. Explain what the process was as you put that together. 
Yeah, so I started this a number of years ago, and my my thought was that we we had some kind of expected numbers we thought we should see for various relationships. So for a first cousin, you know, your expected amount would be twelve and a half percent to share, or what you know, whatever the percentage was sure. is that you you would expect to share. The problem was is that it was all based on what we expected, and and sometimes in the world of genealogy, what you get isn't always what you expect. And so we didn't have any data for actual relationships and the amount of DNA that those relationships shared. So I thought, well, why don't I just set up a really simple Google form? I love Google Forms. They're really adaptable. They're easy to set up. Mm-hmm. It's a survey, essentially. And it was this portal where people could submit and they could say, hey, I tested myself and I tested my first cousin. It turns out that we share 734 centimorgans. So here you go. Here's that information. And so over time, then you're able to take this and figure out, all right, what's the average? What's the range? And obviously, you're you're really hoping and really kind of counting on the fact that they're providing you with accurate data, right? That's correct. And and I know that they, in many cases, they aren't. So, for example, I know that there are data entry errors. There are people that think they're first cousins and they're really half first cousins. Right. But the point is, is that when you get enough data, things like that start to fall away. When you get sure. masses and masses of people submitting real relationship data, it will push up to the side into outliers, the the errors and inaccuracies that people submit. So the larger a project like this is, the more accurate the data is and the less those errors are going to be a problem. Sure. That makes perfect sense. And how many people did you use in that first uh, go round in 2017? Boy, the first go round, I think, had something less than 5,000 people in it, if I recall correctly. That's a lot. That's huge. Well, yeah, I'm thinking about the numbers now, but at the time that was huge. And genealogists, you know, it's it's amazing the extent to which they just jumped into the program headfirst. They they loved it. They loved submitting this data and knowing they were creating something that could potentially be useful not only for themselves but for other people. And so this altruism of of people submitting all of this massive amounts of data is really, really pretty incredible. It's really the community's tool. And I think that's part of what makes it so powerful and amazing. But it was just great that you were able to think of this and recognize the value it could be. I mean, I, I have a screenshot of it, and I have that right on my desktop at all times because I re- yes. refer to it constantly because I don't find there is a more accurate tool out there than your shared Santa Morgan project. No, I mean, it's all because of of the massive amounts of data. Sure. So, you know, that first one started off with 5,000, and then by version two um actually that was in 2015 version two was in uh, 2017 and then it was twenty five thousand. oh wow so, <laughs> yeah yeah no problem yeah, with it's... errors after that i would think well it was it's getting much and much it, every time i put out a new version i think there are fewer and fewer outlier problems um and the data gets better and better you know one thing that i created also in the the 2017 version was histograms so these nice uh, charts that show the distribution of the the values. And what you would start to see is in many of these relationships, there were so many submissions, they formed these beautiful bell curves, which you, is what you would expect sure. for a natural process like that. And so it's really just beautiful to look at the data and see it kind of doing what you expect it to do. 
Right. And it's so practical. That's the thing about it. I mean, there's a real application for this for anybody who wants to play with genetic genealogy. And so now you're doing it again. Yes. Yeah. So the, the, the fourth version just went live this weekend. It's available on my website. There's an interactive version at dnapainter.com. Right. With Johnny um, Pearl. Mm-hmm. It was Johnny Pearl. And um, this version has now 60,000 submissions oh, in wow. total were used for this one. Did yep. you use so, some of the old stuff as well? So did you just add to it or did you do it all fresh? That's correct. I just keep adding to it. So it has okay. the 25,000 in the previous version and it, the new submissions brought it up to 60,000 submissions. And so wow. everything was all recompiled again. So there have been some changes. Some ranges have tightened up. Averages were pretty, stayed pretty close, um, but the ranges kind of changed a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, histograms are you know, more complete. They're more full because there's more data there. So what was the biggest surprise to you when you did this? You know, actually, my biggest surprise was how little the averages changed. Um, the averages stayed pretty much where they were for the most part. There were some relationships that changed a bit. But for me, um, I think I didn't see anything enormously change in this revision, this new update. And to me, that makes sense. Right. right? The data is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and better and better and better. So the average is going to stay there. I think we're going to see the biggest differences is out in the shoulders of the bell curve, out in the yes. outlier region, cleaning those up a little bit. That makes perfect sense. Do you think you'll do it again down the line? Or is this, I mean, 60,000, that's like a college football stadium sold out. Yeah, yeah right. I mean, that's exactly. a lot. I really would like to do another update with over 100,000, I think. Okay. Um, and then call it good. Potentially. Potentially, yes. You know what I might see is some. there are some relationships where there aren't a whole lot of submissions, and that's in part because of the, the relationship involved. When you're talking mm-hmm. about the great-great-grandparent level, for example, there aren't a whole lot of people that have tested a great-great-grandparent and a great-great-grandchild, so those submissions are on the lower side. So I, I might do one future update and then maybe supplement some of the individual relationships as people continue to submit those. But that's further down the road. Sure. You know, one of the things I think is interesting about this is when you look at these numbers and, you know, I'm a number geek, first of all, so I really like that and I love to study it. And we always talk about how we don't exactly get 50% from each parent. And over the course of many generations, we, we see major differences. So for instance, we had a match on my brother from one particular ancestor. I'm thinking that this is a half fourth cousin but it could be a full fourth cousin. Just don't know. And there's so little difference in that when it comes to the shared Centimorgan project that there's really no way to separate that. But it is interesting to see how that maps out when you can see it in theory and then you see the reality of it based on 60,000 people providing that information. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree. Completely agree. It's it's pretty amazing. So what new tools are coming out? We've seen DNA Painter and we've even watched the growth of it and the partnerships that you've put together, say, with Johnny Pearl. And obviously you've just updated this. What new tools are coming down the line that we should look forward to that you think are going to make a huge difference? Well, you know, what, what I'm seeing right now is I think I'm seeing a lot of investment into refinement of some of the existing tools. So, for example, um, Johnny, of course, updating the D 
DNA painter tool with the shared Centimorgan project information. Um, you know, he just recently launched the tree version of yeah. uh, the tree option at DNA painter where you can upload a GEDCOM or build a tree there. And there has all kinds of tools for that color coding and genetic ancestors and X DNA pathway and tree completeness. <laughs> so, you know, and I, I think what's going to happen is I think that will start to tie in more and more to the chromosome mapping you do with DNA painter. So then tying trees and DNA, of course, is something that we've always wanted to, to do in genealogy. So I think it's, I think I see a lot of potential in, in even just that tool alone. So, well, well, that tool um, is, is huge. And I don't think Johnny ever really realized <laughs> that he was going to make yeah. such an impact when he started this, you know? I, I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, you know, you, I, what's great about it is that he created something he himself liked to use. Right? That's right. Yeah, it was for him. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, the, I think those make the best tools, right? We, When you have a problem and you come up with a solution that you like, it makes sense that other people sure. are going to like that solution as well. So um, I think that's, you know, he's done a, an amazing job there. The other types of tools I think that are big right now and going to continue to be big are the clustering tools. Yes. So, you know, the genetic networks, the the shared match groupings that allow us to really potentially learn some pretty powerful things about our ancestry. I always think of these these clustering tools as a way to pinpoint important matches in your match list. So it, it, it allows you to say, hey, I share DNA with this person and this person, and look at our trees. We all share a common ancestor, Jane and John Doe. So, you know, that kind of thing is really powerful. And if these tools can help us do that in sort of an more of an automated fashion. We've been doing it for a while, but it's all been manual. Sure. The more and you more got to remember it. And... You got to recognize yes. it. You go, oh, there's yes. a name I've seen before. Where did I see it? Oh, it's yep. hard. You're right. If we hard. can automate that. And I, and we certainly started seeing some displays of this type of tool at Roots Tech. So we know yes. it's really not very far away. So that's uh, that's pretty exciting stuff. And, uh, you know, I got to think, Dr. Bettinger, we got to pick up right where we were before because uh, we probably left a few people in the dust talking about cluster tools and what that means, you know, yes. because that is a complex thing. And, and only in recent months myself have I started to really examine what that means. Now, we do see... For instance, they've got a great clustering tool on my heritage right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, but there were also some booths at Roots Tech with new tools that are coming along that may help us do some of our own. So explain exactly what this is and why this is significant. Yeah, so let's let's back up a little bit and let's try to explain perhaps what a cluster is. How are these formed? Well, for the most part, clusters are going to be based on shared matching. Now, shared matching is a feature that all the testing companies have. And many of us believe that shared matching is the most powerful tool that the testing companies give us. Absolutely. So shared matching is, and this might be basic for some, for others, I think it's brand new, but the concept is really pretty simple. So let's say I've tested myself and I've tested my second cousin, Seth. Okay. Yep. So we've tested our DNA and guess what? We share DNA. Thank goodness. Right. So right. We share You're supposed DNA. to. <laughs> yeah, we're supposed to. But then what shared matching does is it gives us a key piece of information. I get to see all of the people I share in common with my second cousin. So I might share Jill, for example. 
Jill is now sharing DNA with both Seth and, and I. And so what that means there, therefore, is that it's quite likely that Jill and Seth and I all share a common ancestor at some point in time. Right. And because I know what line I share with Seth, that suggests what line I share with Jill, the same exact line. Right. Now, there are so exceptions, seeing, though, with that in, in the events we find we oh, don't yes. share DNA. Maybe maybe this Jill happens to share down a different branch and, and down one of your uncommon branches also, right? Yep. Yep. And the nice thing about shared matching, though, is the closer the match is, so the closer Jill is to right. me and to Seth, the less likely that situation is. The more distant the match is, then so if Jill's a say a, a distant match, yeah, there's been more time for that kind of weaving in from multiple lines. So when you're focusing on your closest shared matches, typically they're going to be from that same shared yes, line. So totally, which is nice because you know, let's say you have Jill is Jill Doe at testing company xyz right and she doesn't have a tree and she doesn't respond to communications and she doesn't have any identifying information <laughs> but guess what i already have some information about her i already know jill doe must be related or probably related to the same line as as cousin seth and so i can put that in the notes field and focus on another match right exactly so with clustering then basically we find these people who are not only related to you but related to each other that's right. So a cluster then is it can be as simple as three people. So Jill, Seth and I are technically a cluster. We form a, yep. a, a genetic network. But often when you go and you look at your second cousin, Seth, when you look at that shared match list, there could be 20, 30, 50 people in there and you're all forming this nice big genetic network. So, you know, we've been working with these genetic clusters for quite a while, but as we've looked at them more and more, people have said, this is a, a lot of work. What if we can create a tool that can do some of this for us? And that's what these clustering tools do. They have access to our results and they're forming these large genetic networks and they're putting them into tables and into visualizations that help us look at the data in, in sort of just a new way. And sometimes that's all it takes, right? If you can look at data in a new way, you can look at your match list in a new way. Sometimes that allows you to extract out information that you couldn't do when it was in its typical format. Well, because you're also able to see them all in a group, you know there must be a tie there somewhere. So if, if some of them do have a tree, you might be able to figure out what the relationship is from this. For instance, just this past week, I had a match come in as a about a second cousin once removed. And I administer several people down the branch that we shared matches on. And one of them was a first cousin once removed that I had just found last year. He was adopted, and I helped him find his uh, his birth parents that like the same day. And it's very yeah. obvious from this woman's tree that her father was adopted. She doesn't know where he fits in. And because of all this clustering of who all the matches were, and I knew where they all came from, I knew automatically where she fit into the family. Now, unfortunately, as you've just suggested, she hasn't responded back yet. I could give her a lot of answers, but maybe mm -hmm. she was just on there testing to get her ethnicity report for all we know. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely right. But what's amazing is that you're able to learn that about a match with the information that you've looked at in, the, yep. in this shared matching feature. I mean, the power is just incredible. It, it is. You know, it's something we didn't have even just a few years ago to this degree. Correct. It's absolutely amazing. So let's talk about testing a little bit now and pivot. Um, where does testing stand right now with the coronavirus outbreak? Are companies still doing it? Are they still processing it? Should we send it in or should we not? If we have tests at home, what are your thoughts? 
Yeah, so that's a re- that's a really good question, and it is one we're seeing in the Facebook groups consistently. So f- what we've um, learned, and we've looked into this a little bit, is that the, the testing companies are not stopping um, receiving and sending out testing and processing tests. So people should, if they have a test, they should continue to send it in. Now, the one company that's made an announcement is Family Tree DNA, and what they've said is that if you believe or you are experiencing symptoms, then perhaps you can hold off on sending it in. However, there are already things that can be transmitted through saliva. So these samples have always been treated with the requisite level of care. These are all very professional labs doing this work. They are certified to certain levels. We won't go into all the, what all the abbreviations are, but they've all been certified. And what that means is you treat these samples with the respect they're due. And really what that means is you treat each one as if it's going to infect you with other things before we even got to the current state we're in. So they're already treated that way. So this isn't something new that's been put in place. So I think the main concern is the packaging perhaps might be more of a concern if you're actively experiencing symptoms. So perhaps if that's the case, hold on. I mean, you probably are are not too worried about DNA testing at that point in time anyway, but wait till you recover. Or if you're not experiencing symptoms, the testing companies say, go ahead, send it in. Wow. And, you know, I'm sure that there are people listening right now going, oh, that's awesome. Because, you know, it gives us all something to look forward to. And when those test results come in and you start going through matches, I mean, there's just lots and lots of things that you can do with that information and sharing it to other sites and and getting it out there. And what a great thing to do over the next several months. Right. And I think there are lots of people that probably have a test kit lying around that they've been meaning to to send in. So, the word on the street is keep sending them in. So keep that's sending good. sending them in. Well, that's awesome. All right, Dr. Bettinger, we're going to wrap up here in just a few moments. What do you got new that people need to know about? You know, my big area that I'm really excited about, and this could be a whole other session, is um, artifact testing. I think we're going to see a lot of that coming over the next year or two. Uh, we've already seen a little bit of it, but... I've sent in a couple of samples myself to potentially get some DNA out of some older artifacts in the hopes that I might get, for example, my great-grandmother's DNA. So I think there's a lot of exciting stuff there. Right, and I just talked about that with Kara Porter last week on Keepsake DNA, and unfortunately their whole grand opening is going to be held up here with everything else. But that is going to be an astonishing thing if it comes to work out the way it looks like it's going to be. I know you're going to be involved with it. I'm going to be involved with it, and I'm really looking forward to seeing how this goes because I think it's going to give us all an awful lot to talk about in the coming year. I completely agree. He's Dr. Blaine Bettinger. He is one of the premier genetic genealogists in America. And Blaine, great to talk to you again. Stay safe, and we'll catch up with you soon because we do have to talk about keepsakes. That's right. That's right. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. And it is time once again for Ask Us Anything. David Allen Lambert is back from the New England Historic Genealogical Society and AmericanAncestors.org. And uh, David, our first question today comes from Anne Marie. She is in Mottville, Michigan, and she says, guys, I understand that Quebec did censuses centuries ago. Do you have any idea where I might be able to look at censuses from Quebec from the 17th or 18th centuries. David. Well, that's a really good question, and the answer is yes, and the price is free. And this is actually not from Ancestry or from FamilySearch or Fold3. This is actually from the Library and Archives of Canada. In their website, www.bac-lac.com, 
www.gc.ca slash ENG for English slash census will get you to where you need to be. <laughs> okay, now wait a minute. Now, Before now, you go any further, I just remind everybody, especially if they go to extremegenes.com, you will find the transcript there for this entire show, so it'll be written out for you with a link, and you can get it that way instead of trying to listen and try to understand every letter David said. Okay, David, continue. Yes, please stop writing it on your pant leg with that pen. <laughs> Okay, so besides for Quebec, which they have from 1640 to 1880, they have censuses for Ontario from 1719 to 1907, Manitoba, 1827 to 1856, British Columbia, 1870 to 91. They also have places where my ancestors come from, Nova Scotia from 1767 to 1838, New Brunswick, 1773 to 1848, Prince Edward Island, 1787 to 1871, Newfoundland and Labrador, 1671 to 1945. You know, those are some really nice year spans there, and that covers a lot of territory and should cover uh, multiple generations in many of these places. Now, the thing you have to remember, and obviously we do have free time right now, (laughs) these are browsable, not searchable. So you have to kind of browse through them. There are probably some indexes out on the internet, but generally speaking, this is like with family search with browsable images. It's just browse image and frame by frame by frame. But it's great, and it's one of the places you can find it online. You know, this is the thing. I think we generally tend to limit ourselves, especially if you're fairly new to family history research. You think, oh, well, ancestry or family search or my heritage, and maybe you have some of your favorite places to go to. But at the end of the day, man, you get on Google and start looking around at what's out there, and you're going to find so many things that are not available on your go-to sites. And it's really important not to get stuck in that mindset that if it isn't here, here, or here, uh, it's just not going to be found. It really is the truth. And I think with more in the digital age, a lot of people have been dependent on looking just at microfilm and realizing that there are so many different sites that are now taking collections, and now you can get them digital and use them at the comfort of your own home. Yeah, that's really true. And, you know, think about newspapers, right, David? I mean, we think of newspapers.com, Chronicling America, Genealogy Bank. I mean, those are kind of the handful of the biggies when it comes to uh, digitized newspapers, but there are literally hundreds of sites, many of them run by state and local and federal governments for making sure that you have access to all kinds of newspapers, and we just have to keep looking. I mean, that's really part of the part of the search is finding out where these things are. Right. It used to be find the library of the archive I have, but now it's find the website that has it. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. It's kind of like wandering through a library, isn't it? And uh, David, we've got a note here from another David. This one is in Montana, and he said, uh, with the lockdown right now, he says, I just found my mother's address of her home when she was a child back in Illinois, and while I'd love to travel to be there, I can't. Any ideas on where I can get a photo of her house? Well, that's a good question. Well, obviously, you can't contact the local historical societies because, well, they're closed, too, and probably the public library, the Board of Assessors, but you do have Google. You and I, Fish, have both used Google Street View for traveling around the country when we can't travel around the country. Now that we really can't travel around the country, (laughs) it even helps out 
a lot more. Well, and, and you know, you mentioned that. I was talking to a second cousin. He was talking about just going out and taking a, a road trip, just driving around his area because he wanted to see where some of the family was. So we started going online together and going to Google Street View and found out, for instance, the home his birth grandfather had back 100 years ago is now an animal hospital right there just about five miles from his house. And uh, I looked it up. A couple of things you can do with this, by the way. You get the address. Where do you get it from? Well, in his case, we got it from his World War I draft registration. It gave where he lived. Mm -hmm. And then we further saw it on the 1920 census. So you go to Google Street View, look at the, the house, and you go, well, is this a place that could have been around back at that time? Because it might be a home that's been rebuilt in its place. But often Zillow will give you the details of a home and tell you when it was built. So even though it might not be for sale at this time, it can tell you when the house was built, and then you would know whether or not this was the place they lived in at that time. So he's excited because he's going to get to see where his birth grandfather lived and where his birth mother grew up in her early years. And you know what's kind of nice about Zillow? If recently someone has listed it, you can actually see interior pictures of the house. Yes, and I've done this with my father's home that he grew up in as well, and, and it changes over time, but you know, each time they put oh, it up sure. for sale, you get different angles, different views, and different quality pictures as well as time has gone on. So it's a really, really valuable tool, and you can map out all the different houses in the area, and we, we ran across another one where he said, you know, this one was not there at the time, his house was torn down, the one he had lived in, but that's still the same property. It's still the same neighborhood and maybe some of the same features there that were there back when they lived there. Well, you know, recently I got my mother's school records and they moved around a little bit during the Depression, as a lot of families did in urban areas. But in 1941, they moved and they were in Dedham. Well, I gave the address on High Street, and I plugged it in, and here's this gothic little house built in probably the 1870s that my mother grew up in and was there when December 7th, 41 occurred, because they were there through 1943. But what was really more surprising is they lived right next door to the school my mother attended. So obviously she wasn't late for school, but this is <laughs> one of the things I use it for, Fish. I will take it, and I will travel up and down the streets in a few blocks either way, and see what's around, parks that my family may have gone to, mm -hmm. uh, schools or churches. This is a great way of exploring America, or the world for that matter, while we have to self-quarantine at home. You're absolutely right, David. It's uh, a lot of fun, too, to virtually travel that way, and you'll be surprised some of the things you figure out or you're able to understand that you wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. And in many ways, it's much more efficient than just driving around and looking at it physically. Great question. Thanks so much for it. And of course, if you ever have a question for Ask Us Anything, you can email us at askusanything at extremegenes.com. David, thanks so much. We'll talk to you next week. Talk to you soon. All right, and that's our show for this week. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks to Dr. Blaine Bettinger, the DNA specialist, for coming on and sharing his thoughts on where we are right now and what might be coming in the future. Talk to you again next week. And remember, as far as everyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. This has been Extreme Genes. Share your family story by going to FamilySearch.org. 